Good evening. How's everybody doing tonight? My name is Julie Yoder, and I am on staff here at Crew. I'm a Ball State grad, and um, I love fall. Does anybody else love fall in this room? Yes, yes. I am loving, loving the fall weather. The only downside, I think, is that winter follows fall, and I don't like the cold. I'm one of those people who's always concerned with how cold it is in a building. Yes, I'm one of those girls. And when I get cold, I don't really warm back up very well, so I do everything I can to prevent it. Um, like when I go to Panera, Panera's freezing, am I right? So when I go to Panera, I dress for Panera weather, not outside real weather, because I know I'm going to be cold no matter how, time, how much time I spend there. Maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you're a person who is constantly warm and overheating all the time. That might be you. I had a roommate in college like this. I see some hands in the back. Yep. Um, maybe you're um, like this. My roommate in college was like this. My husband, Sean, is actually like this, too, so you can imagine how the thermostat wars go in our home. But in college, my roommate, she would like to like, crack her window open at night in the winter to like, let the cold air come into her bedroom because she was one of those that liked to sleep with it like really cold in her bedroom. I don't understand you people. <laughs> and so we would have fights and we would have arguments over me saying, why are you letting the cold air in and the warm, wonderful air that we paid for out? And she would say, it's too hot and stuffy in here. I like it cooler. And I'm like, no, that's called warm and cozy. And so we would go back and forth on being warm and cold. And some of you might be able to resonate. Maybe you're having those conversations with your roommates even now as the weather begins to change. Um, sometimes I'm so committed to my warmth that sometimes I'll walk into a room and I'll change the thermostat without even asking anybody if it's okay. I'm so rude like that, but that's how committed I am to being warm. Um, Imagine how I would be in a situation that actually matters more than just my comfort. Um, I am like this in other areas of life. The more intense the situation, the more self-productive, um, self-protective, and self-serving I become. When I get anxious and stressed, all I care about is me getting my things done, my to-do list, my responsibilities, see you later, friends, excuse me for a while, I got to do me. Fear would be the most intense situation that I would find myself in, I think. And when I encounter things that I fear, even more than the cold, like failure or rejection, my self-protective switch becomes almost manipulative, where I try and grasp the things that I long for, but also hold them at arm's length at the same time. And I know I'm probably not the only one in here who does this, because in moments of fear, we become self-protective and self-preserving. And in those moments, a lot of questions come into our minds. Who can we trust? Does anybody care? Does God care? Is it possible to find peace in the midst of fear? So tonight, we're going to answer those questions and explore what that looks like. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thanks so much for who you are, Lord, and thank you for your word. God, I pray that your spirit would fill the hearts of those here, Lord, and that you'd reveal more about who you are, Lord, and what it looks like to trust you from your word tonight. In your name, amen. 
If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them to Mark chapter 4. We are in the midst of a talk series titled, Who Do You Say That I Am? And so far, we've learned how Jesus has authority to teach, to forgive, how he has authority over religion, and tonight we're going to look at Jesus' authority over nature. The words, uh, the verses will be on the screen here also, um, but we're in Mark chapter 4, starting in verses 35 and 36. It says, on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, with him, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So let's get some context here, what's going on. Jesus has been teaching on the Sea of Galilee all day. Large, large, large crowds have been following him. And he's been standing on the seashore, preaching to them. And as evening falls, he says to his 12 disciples, all right, it's time to go. We're going to go across the Lake of Galilee, which is this little sea in Israel. Um, We're going to go across the sea and so that he can teach in other towns and cities is the purpose of that. So Jesus and his 12 disciples get into this fishing boat and they head out across the sea. Uh, This is also a picture of what the fishing boat might look like at that time. Um, This is, this kind of boat holds about 15 people. So they all pile in. And the disciples were expert fishermen. They were vocationally fishermen. So this is what they did. They lived life in these boats on the Sea of Galilee. So they're in their home turf, right? They're in their home court. They have the home field advantage. This is what they do every day. But it's not going to be an ordinary day on the sea, as we will see in the next verse. 37 says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. This great windstorm blows in, and it's threatening to overtake the boat. Sudden windstorms on the Sea of Galilee are actually common. Even to this day, they're very common. Because of the unique topography of the area, um, and you'll see on the screen here what this looks like, um, there's a mountain that's very near to the Sea of Galilee, which is over 9,900 feet up, and then the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. And so for um, all you weather majors, this causes cold air and warm air to collide, causing major, major storms to... um, to spring up at a moment's notice. And so you can imagine what's happening to that wooden fishing boat, right? It's being tossed around. The waves are crashing into the boat. The disciples are clamoring to bail water as fast as they can. Um, But it's not working. The boat is filling, and it's threatening to sink. But they're expert fishermen. They're on their home court, right? And so they deal with, stu- with sudden storms like this regularly. We would expect them to know how to handle a situation like this. They're the experts. But they're not calm. And what's even more surprising is what Jesus is doing in this situation. Let's continue in verse 38. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus is asleep on a sandbag in the middle of a storm? What? This boat is being tossed around. The waves are crashing in. Everybody is soaking wet. 
the wind is howling, the disciples are shouting, probably trying to talk over the wind, and Jesus is sleeping. It almost makes you wonder what's wrong with the guy. Is he ill? Has he been up all night studying for a test or finishing a project? Because then he could probably sleep through anything, right? Why on earth is he sleeping right now? I think it's actually because he's not afraid because he knows how the story is going to end. But the disciples don't know that. They're terrified. They think they're going to die. This is no ordinary storm, too, because the, the experts are scared. And you know if the experts are scared, it's really bad. If you were the disciples, how would you respond to Jesus? Maybe similarly to how they do here, somewhat sarcastically, I think. They wake him up. Um, excuse me, so sorry to bother your nap, but our boat is sinking, and so we're afraid we're going to die. Do you even care is how they respond to him. In fearful situations, it's really easy to think that no one, including God, cares for us. Back in the spring, on a Friday morning, I was in our apartment, and I saw something move out of the corner of my eye, and I look over, and a little mouse is walking, just walking through the middle of our dining room. I'm a suburban girl. I don't deal with things like that very well. And so a lot of squealing and jumping and hysterics ensue, and I... I leap onto this little bench that we have in our entryway, and I'm like perched on this bench, screaming, and I just start crying hysterically because I don't know what to do right now. And it gets even worse when I realize that my phone is over in the middle of our living room, and so I decide to play that the floor is lava, and I hop from my little perch on my bench to our couch, over to the ottoman to grab my phone, and then I hop back, grab my keys, lock the apartment door, and go hibernate and quarantine myself in my car to escape this intruder that is loose in our home. And I, so I'm still crying hysterically, not knowing what to do about the situation. So I call Sean. He doesn't answer. I call him again. He doesn't answer. I call him again. He doesn't answer. When your wife calls you three times, you answer the phone. <laughs> and so when he finally picks up the phone and he explains to me he didn't answer because they were praying, okay, <laughs> that's fine, I guess. Um, I managed to explain to him what the situation is and that I've quarantined myself outside in the car would he please come home and take care of this? Don't you even care about me? Come save me. Mm -hmm. Of course, Sean does care about me. He did come home. He did eventually capture our little intruder. But, yes, what a man. <laughs> Suburban girl needs a, needs a man like that in her life. Um, but isn't it interesting that in that moment of fear that I assumed that Sean did not care for me? The same thing happens with the disciples. In their fear, they assume that Jesus does not care for them, but he does care. He cares a lot. And he demonstrates how much in the next verse. Verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. 
and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Without saying a word, Jesus woke up and said, shh, to the wind and the waves and the terrifying storm, and everything changed. The wind stops howling, and it calms. And the waves calm. You would think the waves, they would actually probably still roll for quite a while because it would take a while for the waves to kind of calm themselves down as big as they were. But our passage says there was a great calm, which means that even the water and the waves became calm. And so I imagine that a hush came over the sea, even into the disciples as their boat bobbed and the water softly lapped the sides of their boat. With a word, Jesus demonstrates his authority over nature and does what only God can do. Notice that in doing so, Jesus doesn't use any incantations or spells. He doesn't call on the authority of another higher power. He uses the power that he possesses in himself. And the wind and the waves hear and respond. How much power do we have to control nature with our words? Even today, we view nature as this chaotic, uncontrollable force that we're simply at the mercy of. We can shout at it all we want, but we're never going to change it. We struggle to get our pets to obey our verbal commands, right? Have you ever tried to get a two-year-old toddler to listen and obey? Sometimes that's harder than the pet. And yet, the wind and the waves, nature itself obeys Jesus like a compliant child when he says to calm down and be still. Then in verse 40, Jesus turns to his disciples. He said to them, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus admonishes them for their fear and their lack of faith. How do you think the disciples are feeling at this point? They're probably relieved that they're not going to die. Perhaps an odd mixture of being amazed at what Jesus did, but also a little confused why he's upset with them for being afraid. We would also expect that their fear would have subsided at this time because the storm is calm, except that the calm sea actually intensifies their fear. In verse 41, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Why would their fear intensify instead of lessen when Jesus calmed the storm? Their fear shifts from the storm to the person in the boat with them who has just done something that they cannot explain or comprehend. And the disciples actually ask a really great question. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And we're left with this great rhetorical question hanging in our minds. How would you answer that question? Who is this? The one the wind and sea obeys. It's an extremely important question because how we answer that question will affect every storm that we encounter in life. But before we do, I think we need to answer a couple other questions from our story. Why did Jesus admonish his disciples for their fear? And why didn't Jesus prevent the storm 
or calm it altogether previously. So why did Jesus admonish his disciples? What was wrong with the way that they responded to this storm? This is a life or death situation, right? Aren't they allowed to care about saving themselves? Yes, they are. But that's not what they're doing, and it's not why they're admonished. Jesus admonishes them for their lack of faith in him. In the midst of their fear, they forgot who was with them, and they became self-preserving, self-protective, and assumed that Jesus does not care about them. How do you respond when you're anxious, afraid, or fearful? Are you also self-protective and self-preserving? Maybe for you, it's fear about a grade or a test on a project that affects your GPA, that affects your ability to get into grad school. And so anxiety begins to eat you alive. And you self-preservingly allow your performance to rule and run your whole life. Maybe it's fear about money, how you're going to pay for school, books, rent, the debt that seems to be piling up. And so you self-protectively rearrange your priorities and your values in order to make more money. Maybe it's fear of raising support for a summer mission trip. And so you choose a self-protective, safe summer option instead. Maybe you have fear about the future or fear of the unknown. And so you attempt to take matters into your own hands, grasping for the illusion of control or a plan. Maybe you fear vulnerability. And so you self-protectively create walls in your relationships to avoid being exposed. Maybe you have fear of being alone. And so you protect yourself from isolation by choosing or allowing unhealthy friendships or dating relationships into your life. Maybe you fear failure and you shift into self-protective overdrive, frantically overworking, doing whatever it takes to avoid failure. Maybe you have fear for a family member or a loved one or a family situation and that emotion that's welling up inside, you stuff it away and ignore it, hoping that it'll go away. Maybe it's a deep soul-level fear about eternity and how you will spend it. And so you self-preservedly do as much good as you can in the world and hope that in the end, it amounts to something. How do you respond in these situations? We aren't so different from the disciples. In moments of fear, we become self-protective and self-preserving, too. The other question, why didn't Jesus prevent the storm or calm it earlier? Why did he allow them to go into the storm in the first place? Behind this question is actually a false assumption that if God loves us, he won't let us go into storms. Behind this question is a false assumption that if God loves us, he won't let us go through storms. But storms are part of a broken world and everyone experiences them. No one is immune. 
and storms in your life have nothing to do with how much God loves you or if he does. How did God demonstrate his love for his disciples during the storm? It wasn't that he calmed it. It was that he revealed more of who he was through it and invited them to greater faith in him as a result. God's love is not demonstrated by the calming of the storm, but by his presence with them in the midst of it. You see, the disciples didn't really know who Jesus was yet, and they wouldn't fully understand until Jesus died on the cross and resurrected. Then, then they would get it. But we live on the other side of this story. Jesus bowed his head and allowed the ultimate storm of eternal justice to sweep over him. The waves of sin and death to swallow him. That storm wasn't called, wasn't calmed until it swept Jesus away. All the punishment we deserve for our wrongdoing to God Jesus took it upon himself, and then he rose to life, claiming victory over death, offering us eternal life also. So don't ever say that God doesn't love you because there's a storm in your life. Jesus already succumbed to and quieted the only storm that could ever really crush you and destroy you, the storm of eternal judgment. One day, he will return, and he will quiet all storms. Jesus is the power that brings peace into the world and peace into our hearts. Jesus does what only God can do. He displays his divinity. He is the one who does have authority in chaos. Things are not out of his control. He himself is the power. He embodies it. And so where he is, the power of peace is. He himself is peace in the midst of of uncontrollable chaos. If Jesus is with us, there is nothing to fear. And that is what the disciples didn't see. Let's return to the question the disciples are faced with. Who is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? How would you answer that question? The point of the story, after all, is who Jesus reveals himself to be and what we do with that. We are called and invited to have faith in the one whom the wind and the waves obey. If you've never trusted in Christ as your savior, I would encourage you to make that decision. Trust in the one that the wind and waves obey. Trust him for your eternal destiny. Place your trust in the one who brings us peace with God. If you are a Christian and you've already trusted Christ as your savior, this means that you trust him with the storms of life. If you'd like to talk with somebody else about that, I encourage you to write that on the blue card at the end of the night. And we would love to talk with you more about that, what that looks like for you to trust God for the first time or again. For me, one of the most emotionally and spiritually turbulent storms of my life was the year after I graduated from Ball State. I headed overseas on an internship with crew called Stint. And I had been to this place in East Asia previously. I had been there um, on a six-week summer mission trip with crew. And I absolutely loved it. 
And I knew that God was calling me to return to East Asia for a year, and I was so excited, and I was looking forward to it. So initially, my time in East Asia was really great. I was settling in, I was really enjoying my team, I liked most of the food, and um, ministry was off to a great start. But what I quickly came to realize was that a six-week trip is very different than actually trying to live there. I didn't speak the language, and outside of the university where we're working at, nobody in the community spoke English. And so, imagine trying to buy things like dishes, which I had to do. There's no, I don't have a car, public transportation, I can't read the bus signs, because they're in a language I don't understand. I can't communicate with a taxi driver. And I don't even know where to go to buy those things because the signs are in a language that I do not read. So I can't even walk there. Or if I finally find the place, the salesman, I have no way of speaking to him to actually purchase the items and then get anything home. So imagine every area of your life is like this, from getting food, going to the grocery, going to the bank. Some might find that adventuresome and really rise to the challenge of figuring those things out. But for me, my highly valued independence was being ripped away from me. About two months into my 10-month commitment, eight months before I was going home, I realized that I didn't like living in East Asia. I felt stuck and slightly panicky. My team was still great, ministry was still great, but I was struggling. Why did God walk me straight into a situation that he knew was gonna be hard for me? One that I was stuck in for another eight months. Why would he do that to me? I wrestled with God for a long time. God, why did you send me here? What is the purpose of this? Everything changed when I realized that God was with me in the midst of where I was. He hadn't left me. And even if my situation was difficult, I could trust him. My independence was gone, but God was with me. In the midst of my storm, I chose to trust him to take care of me. And then when he called me to go back to East Asia for another year, I trusted him to care for me again. So we see that because Jesus has conquered this ultimate storm, if we place our faith with him, we can sit in our little boat in the middle of our stormy circumstances without fear. I can look at this looming wave in my life and say, Jesus has me. I'm not afraid. I will trust him to take care of me instead of resorting to self-protective, self-preserving methods. Jesus is the power to step up to the storm raging in our hearts and say, quiet. The howling lies, the raging fear, they cease. Because Jesus is the power to bring peace, 
we can trust him in the midst of fear and in the midst of chaos. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are the Lord of the storm, that you calm our fears, Lord, that you have power, that you have authority, that by your name, the wind and the waves obey you. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to choose to trust you in the midst of our stormy circumstances. Amen.